1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, and then 20. Now there was a certain man from Ramathium, a Zophite from the highlands of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. He was from the tribe of Ephraim, and he was the son of Jeroham, son of Elohu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf. Elkanah had two wives, one named Hannah and the other named Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah didn't. Every year this man would leave his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of heavenly forces in Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hopni and Phinehas, were the Lord's priests. Whenever he sacrificed, Elkanah would give parts of the sacrifice to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters, but he would give only one part of it to Hannah, though he loved her because the Lord had kept her from conceiving. And because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving, her rival would make fun of her mercilessly just to bother her. So that is what took place year after year whenever Hannah went to the Lord's house. Peninnah would make fun of her, then she would cry and wouldn't eat anything. Then verse 20 says, In the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, which means, I asked the Lord for him. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. If I could invite you to be seated, please. Before I begin, um, I just want to give you a heads up or ask you to pay attention when you drive in and around the church for the next couple of months. Uh, the roof for much of the church is going to be getting replaced from the hail damage a couple years ago. And so there's going to be roofers, equipment, I'm sure a fence somewhere with stuff, and who knows whatever else. So I just ask you to pay attention as you're driving around and as you're walking in and out of the building just to make sure that there's, you know, there's not stuff that's fallen or blown off the roof or something like that. It's a blessing though, right? Okay, so this morning we're going to be continuing our sermon series where we are looking at some of the women in the Old and New Testaments. Over the past two Sundays we've taken some time. The first to look at Mary Magdalene from the Gospels and also from the book of Acts. And then we also looked at Lydia, and we read of Lydia's story. Lydia lived in Philippi, and both her and Mary Magdalene demonstrate for us faithful ways in which God uh, has, has been present and has worked through all sorts of people. And so in Mary Magdalene's case, we see in her story how God used her to be the faithful witness that remained at the cross of Jesus Christ, even as the disciples had fled, even as others had gone, and Mary stayed and watched. And she's the one that saw Joseph of Arimathea take down the body, uh, take Jesus to the tomb, and bury him. And she's the one that returned that next, or two days later in that morning. Lydia's story, we saw how, how she was searching and how she found a greater truth. And how she discovered the grace and love of God as it was offered to her through Jesus Christ, even as she was a Gentile God-fearer in the city of Philippi, who Paul met at the riverside, and who heard the gospel of Jesus, and her life was changed and transformed. And so today we're going to be spending some time in 1 Samuel. This is an Old Testament book, and in this story we see the faithfulness of Hannah, and Samuel tells us very quickly who Hannah was, this book of the Bible. It tells us she's one of the two wives of a man named Elkanah. 
1 Samuel tells us that Elkanah was an Ephraimite, although if you look and biblical scholars have gone back and have read and seen the genealogical line that is listed, and what it actually is telling us is that Elkanah was not an Ephraimite genetically, but he was actually a Levite. That means he was an ancient descendant of the tribe of Levi that we read about in the Old Testament and that we read about when the people of Israel came from the wilderness, the tribe of Levi was set aside by God to serve as the priests and the functionaries who oversaw the tabernacle and the worship of the people of Israel. So as the tribe of Levi, they didn't actually have a territory set aside for them. If you look on the next slide, I think, is the map. Okay, so you can see the map, how the tribes are separated out. The tribe of Levi, if you look, does not have a tribe. And so what it was is planned to do, or what God had decided they would do, is they would be granted places within all of the land areas of all the other tribes, all of the other territories. And so the, the Levites would be there, and they would be the people that helped to lead the, the religious function of Israel. And so in this case, Elkanah lives in the land of Ephraim, which is that pink blob right in the very middle. What it also tells us is that Elkanah's family had probably lived in this region for so long that people didn't think, oh, it was Elkanah, they're Levites. They considered them one of their own, didn't they? And so when they talked of him, or when the author of 1 Samuel writes about him, they just say, oh, it's Elkanah. He was an Ephraimite. He's part of our tribe. He's part of our family, even if he is a Levite. The scripture tells us that they lived about 25 miles from Shiloh. Shiloh's was the location where the tabernacle had been set up. The tabernacle, as we know from the book of Exodus, is where Moses had gone up to the top of, of the mountain and God had given him the Ten Commandments on the tablets and then God had instructed what type of structure they were to build to set up as they traveled for the wilderness. A place where God would reside within their midst, to, where God would, would offer his presence amongst them. And so that when they entered the land of Canaan or of Israel, the tabernacle was set up in Shiloh. And that's where it stayed until it was, it was lost in battle later. So the people of Israel, as we read about in 1 Samuel, would journey in some regularity to Shiloh. And there they would worship God and they would offer sacrifice. As a Levite, there are times that Elkanah would himself would have to go to, the, to Shiloh where he would have to participate in worship. And so during these times, we can assume that his wives, Hannah and Peninnah, would travel with him. There they would all offer sacrifice to God. There they would all spend time in prayer. There they would worship. And then when Elkanah's job or his period of time that he had to serve was done, they would return home. And so each of their, each year all of them would go to Shiloh. And each year Hannah would pray that she would be able to have a child and her Sister or Elkanah's other wife, Peninnah, would, would rub it in her face. And one year she was at the tabernacle in prayer. 
And she prayed, Lord of heavenly forces, just look at your servant's pain and remember me. Don't forget your servant. Give her a boy, then I'll give him to the Lord for his entire life. No razor will ever touch his head. The priest who was Eli who administered the tabernacle saw her in prayer. He saw her lips move. He did not hear her voice or, or hear anything else. He saw the tears fall. He saw the way that, that she prayed so fervently. And he assumes that she's drunk instead of, I guess, having a religious moment. And so he said, how long will you act that way? Sober up. Hannah's response was this. I'm just a very sad woman. I haven't had any wine or beer, but have been pouring out my heart to God. Don't think your servant is some good-for-nothing woman this whole time. I've been praying out of my great worry and my trouble. <clears throat> so Eli hears her response, and his heart is changed towards her. And he prayed that God would bless her and that God would do whatever that, that she was praying for. Eli did not know what Hannah was praying for. He did not know why she had come to the tabernacle to, to lift to God in prayer, whatever it was that she was praying, but he blessed her. Now see, friends, here's where we need to take a side note. Is this interaction in the time of Eli's priesthood is, this is one of the lowest times spiritually for the people of Israel before they established the temple and before King David. Israel at the time was this loose confederation of tribes. And so that meant that they lived in the respective territories and they each handled their own business. And as a tribe, they might have, have related to one another as family groups. But when it came to, to interacting with other tribes, they didn't really do that. Until they were threatened by other people or until uh, the Philistines or other people would rise up against one of the tribes of Israel. And then God would raise a judge in their midst who would rally the tribes to come together in military action. And so they would go and they would act. And then as soon as the invaders were, were overthrown or, or repelled, Israel would go right back to being a loose confederation of tribes. They would lose their unity. They would lose their support. And so this time is a very low time as we think about it in, the, in, the, in terms of Israel and also in terms of the spiritual life of Israel. Because the scripture also tells us that Eli's sons, Phinehas, I always want to say Phineas, like from Phineas and Ferb. Um, Phinehas, which was a great show, but anyway. Um, Phinehas and Hopni, were Eli's sons, and they were also serving in the tabernacle, and the two of them were abusing their positions of authority. The first is, is they rejected their, their position as a priest. They were supposed to be allowed a portion of meat that was put into this, this boiling pot, and their portion of meat was supposed to be determined by them just sticking a fork in the pot, and whatever came off the fork was the piece of meat that they received. Instead, they were going to people and they were saying, uh, no, you're going to give me the best now before it ever goes into the pot. And they were abusing their position. The second was they were uh, engaging in sexual relations with the women who came to worship at the tabernacle. Eli knew what they were doing and he didn't act. 
He allowed them to serve in their positions. He re this resulted in a time in which the people of Israel spiritually were at their lowest. Because the people heard what was happening at the temple. Or at the tabernacle. It wasn't a temple yet. They heard what was happening. And who wants to go to a place of worship when you hear all of these things that are happening. That of power being abused. Of people using their position to get the best for themselves. And so the people weren't wanting to come. They weren't wanting to offer their worship. They weren't wanting to offer their best. Because they were able to rightfully assume and rightfully know that whatever was going to happen in worship was that they were going to be wronged. Weren't they? Who wants to come and offer your best to God when really the best is going to be taken by force? And see, this is essentially what's happening. The priests were abusing who they were and what God was calling them to do. And the response of the people then was not to go and try to meet God, not to go and try to worship with God and to God and for God. But see, here's where Hannah's story comes into play because God had a plan. To bring a light into this situation and to bring a light into the nation of Israel and the people that we remember as Israel. A plan that involved and started with a woman named Hannah. Hannah who had no significance other than the fact that she chose to engage God in prayer. She chose to go in worship to God. And when I say she has no significance, I'm not saying she as a person doesn't have significance. But I think if you go and you read her scripture, and if you read the scriptures that tell us about her, there are some things that are missing. Because look, there's no genealogical connection that connects Hannah to either um, the Old Testament leaders of the people of Israel or even Jesus. So she's not an ancestor of Jesus. She's not listed in, in any important genealogy. Her husband Elkanah, short of him being a, a Levite, really doesn't have any significance in terms of who he was either. So these aren't people that are being picked because of who they are or what they are or who they're related to. See, the thing is, is Hannah is ordinary just like you are and just like I am. But see, God heard her prayers. And God used the answer to her prayers to bring light into Israel when things were probably at their darkest. And we know her son was named Samuel. You can read First and Second Samuel that, that tell us all of his story. But we know that, that he heard the voice of God in the tabernacle as he lay there as a child. We know that he would spend his life in service to God as his mouthpiece to Israel. We know that Samuel was the one who would hear the cries of Israel for a king to unite them in battle and in peace. Samuel would anoint the head of Saul. He would later anoint the head of David. Samuel would be the one to confront David, but it all begins because Hannah was willing to pray and because God used her. See, she learned to do what so many of us try to do and at times are unable to do, which is to cast our burdens on the Lord and, he shall, and allow God to sustain us. She had come to a point in her life where her only option was to pray. 
was to give her concern to God and to leave those things that she was praying and lifting up to Him, to leave them with Him. And in doing so, she showed a, a humility and a willingness to place her trust in God in a level that, that I think so many of us wish we could do in a better way. How often do we try to give our prayers, our joys, our concerns to God with one hand while still clinging to them with the other hand? Or we say that we're giving it up to God while still hanging on and dragging it behind us. See friends, Hannah reminds me that when I can't do it on my own, I can rest assured that God hears my prayer, whether it's a joy, whether it's a concern, or whether it's a little bit of both. In 1 Peter 5, verse 6 and 7, the author of Peter tells the reader, Therefore humble yourselves under God's power so that he may raise you up on the last day. Throw all your anxiety onto him because he cares about you. Isn't this what Hannah did? She threw all her anxieties to God. She prayed and she gave it to Him, trusting that He cared for her. And she believed that He would work according to His grace and for His glory. See, part of growing as a follower of Jesus means being able to give Him all things in prayer, whether it's the good things or whether it's the bad, giving Him our strengths, giving Him our shortcomings, and believing that whatever happens, that God will take whatever situation that is and He'll turn it for the best. Because we know that God will restore. We know that God will strengthen. We know that God will empower And we know that God will be with each of us. And part of doing that is being willing to throw our anxiety on Him because He cares about you. See, friends, Santa shows us that there's nothing too great for us to put on God, for us to place upon Him, for us to give to Him, and for us to believe that whatever comes of it will be of His will and be of His Spirit even when we don't understand See, she was willing to do it. And Israel in their life was probably at one of their lowest times as what it meant to be a people, to what it meant to be a group of people, for what it meant to be a people who were living in response to all that God had done for them. But because she was willing, God worked and Israel was was able to, to return to him through the kingship of Saul, through, through the kingship of David, through Solomon building the temple, and then through everything else that we read in the Old Testament. But it all begins with us and with her throwing her anxiety on him, knowing that he cares about each of you. Amen.